So every Sunday we've been going through this understanding of what a healthy church is, and we've been doing this for a year now. What is a healthy church? And we talked about how a healthy church is a, is a community of disciples, and a community of disciples um, that are united by His Spirit. And we talked about what disciples are. Disciples are those who are, who are acquiring knowledge about God and the things of God, and that that knowledge is, is is being met in their lives by God's Spirit, and, and, and it's transforming them to become more like Christ. And, and, and the result is, is a healthy church, people who, who are so in love with God and so in love with each other, a group of people that come from all different backgrounds, um, not same age, not the same socioeconomic, not the same ethnicity, all different backgrounds, and God unites them as not just a family, but but, but, but more than a family, with bonds that are stronger than a family. And this is a healthy church, and we keep the attributes of the healthy church on the back of the notes because we want you to see that. And I hope, as we're going through this, that as we're learning about it, that, that some things kind of pop through in, in your mind as we're talking about that. And, and, you know, one of them might be like, well, that's not us. All right, well, maybe that's not us. Or maybe something else might be popping in your head like, you know, I see that. I see some of that. I see parts of that. Or I can, I can see it developing. I can see it growing. And that's a good thing. But here's the most important thing. If we're looking at God's word, and by the way, if you think what I'm telling you is not from God's word, we need to talk. Because, you know, I'm trying to study and present to you what God's word teaches. So if you believe that's what I'm doing and you're hearing God's word and you see the truth of what a church is, then, then this is the thought that we have to get to. Whether we're there, whether we're almost there, whether we're on the journey, it has to be something that we long for. It has to be something that, that we want, but more than what we want, that, that we need. When we get a clearer picture of what a healthy church is, we, we, we should become obsessed with having that. Not because it's just for our own sake, although I think a healthy church makes life better, but it's for the sake of the kingdom. We should want it. And if we get there, if we get there, we're almost there. Still got a couple more steps but we should want it. That's why I ask you questions that a lot of pastors don't want to ask. Is that as we're looking at the truth of what it means to be a healthy church, and we're looking at the truth of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to a disciple, and, and what results from it, the question that a lot of people don't want to ask, but I ask you is, do you really want it? Or are you okay with whatever we are right now? Are you okay with whatever you are right now as a Christian? And as you see these things that, are, that we're confronting in the Word of God and confronting us in our lives, do we look at that and go, yeah, that'd be nice. Eh, if it was here, you know, I'd use it. Or do we really want it? Do we really value what God values, what His Word values? even if we don't think we can do it. Remember what I told you last week? What I told you last week is 
When you get to the point, when you understand what, the health, what a healthy church is and what God is calling us to be, you, if you're really honest about it, you'll realize we can't do this. And that's exactly where we need to be. Because when we realize we can't do it, when it happens, we know it's God. Because we know on our own, we would just keep being whatever we are. Or we would become something different that's really not what, what God wants us to be. But when we realize that it is impossible for us to do, when it happens, we know it's going to be from God. And just keep in mind, when I talk about a healthy church, I'm not talking about the size of the church. I'm not talking about how much money the church has. I'm not talking about a building that the, that the, that the church might have. One of the fastest growing areas, churches, Christianity's growth in a, in a nation is one that might surprise you. I was reading a story about it this week. It's in Iran. Iran. These people, they don't, these churches, they don't have buildings. See, what we think is, they don't have buildings, but they wish they did. They don't have money. You know, what we think is, they don't have money, but they wish they did. They don't have freedom. They don't know any time that they meet that, that they could be arrested just for associating with other believers. They have persecution. They could be imprisoned, they could be killed, they could be raped. And we, we have in our mind that we feel sorry for them. When in fact, I think they should feel sorry for us. Because we think sometimes what a healthy church is has to do with things that really have nothing to do with being a healthy church. We want to long for it. We want to see it. We want to have those kind of relationships, that kind of community. Well, we've been going through 1 John, and John was writing this letter you know, in the, in the latter part of the, of the first century. And, and he's writing to a church that is relatively healthy. They're, they're only two or three generations from, from the first church. But they're having some problems. Or at least they're being threatened and endangered. So we're going to begin chapter two. Before I did, I wanted to show you this quote. There's this quote. I take very small doses of it regularly against depression and against indigestion, indigestion, and with the most brilliant success. I don't want to ask you who said this first. I want to ask you, do we know what he's talking about? Well, it was, it was said in the late 19th century. He's talking about cocaine. There was a time when cocaine was thought to be like the miracle drug. You know, because it actually, you know, made you feel euphoric, you didn't have pain, et cetera, et cetera. So who said this? Well, I think we have a picture. You guys know who that is? Yeah, Sigmund Freud. It wasn't some 
wasn't some crackhead, right? It wasn't some, somebody that was just, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to, no, supposedly very educated, knowledgeable guy. It's funny that sometimes we, we, we get into these situations because I'm pretty sure that if, if people kept taking cocaine that they would, they would start to see these effects, but if at the time they wouldn't have been able to necessarily connect the effects with the drug. And if that's the case, the effects would have just continued to spread. And nobody would have thought what the cause was, what is the problem. There's other things, by the way. You know, for a long time, cigarette smoking. You know, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure I saw this, but I'm pretty sure I saw an old Superman movie and, you know, Superman smoking a cigarette. Um, not sure how he could run and all that. His respiration must have been hard. I, I've been watching old Mission Impossible, the TV series. There's so much cigarette smoking going on <laughs> among the, you know, the supposed, you know, super spies that can run around and do all these things. Same kind of things with heroin, LSD. I remember this, uh, I don't, I mean, I don't remember this. I was too young. I hope my parents didn't buy into this. But sometime in the early 70s, they thought if you, if you made water radioactive, that it was good for you. So, again, some of you are having problems now. Go look back at what you drank 40, 50 years ago. We, we don't always know the cause, we, you know, and then, you know, in more like everyday life, you might have heard this, or maybe you've thought this or said this, um, where did all my money go? You guys ever thought that? Where did my paycheck go? You know, or maybe more common, how did my clothes get so small? You know, how did I get so out of shape? Well, we ask these questions. Sometimes we know the answer. Sometimes we don't. But we have these effects, and because we don't, we don't connect the effect to the cause, we never really deal with the problem. So if you suspect the dryer is shrinking your clothes, you just get another dryer. Or maybe you buy bigger clothes. But you don't deal with the problem. That's what happens with sin. People have become very, like, adapted to living with the effects of sin. And because the world doesn't believe in sin anymore, it doesn't want to talk about sin, they, 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 they never really realize what the danger is. And they keep having these problems, and they, and they can't figure it out. They either blame something else that really isn't the problem, or they do the thing, you know, when we can't explain something, go, just happens. Bad things just happen. When I first got back into running, back when I was in my 30s, I got serious about running. And I didn't, you know, even though I'd run before, I didn't really understand anything. I just would go train. And it was like, run. And the whole thing was, whatever I did on Monday, I did harder on Tuesday. And then I did even harder on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. And you know what? Got a lot more fit, got faster for about six months. 
and around six or seven months, things started to fall apart. Because the human body is not made to take that kind of stress that long, I didn't realize the importance of resting. And I didn't realize that all of this good stuff I was doing was actually going to start hurting me. And then I started getting injured. But I'm still not smart enough to really sort out why I'm injured. I just think injuries happen. Plus, I was almost 40, and I was like, well, this is just what happens. You get 40, things start to fall apart. Well, I would get better, and I'd start running again, do the same thing. And finally, I decided to do something kind of unusual. I decided to study and figure out why I kept getting hurt. And I realized the way I was training was wrong. Things didn't just happen. Injuries weren't just occurring. They were occurring because I was doing something that I didn't realize I was doing to cause them. Same kind of thing with sin. If just because you don't know the effect of something doesn't mean it's not affecting you. Just because you want to deny the existence of something doesn't mean that the reality of that thing is not affecting you. And so, John is writing to these people, and, and, and the people had been told by these false teachers, first of all, you know, Jesus wasn't really human. He was God, but he wasn't really human. And then he had, they had been told that you could become sinless, and apparently what they meant was you can become sinless like we are. And John is writing to say, no, both of those things are wrong. Not right. So we pick it up in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. One thing we have to understand is that if we accept the Bible as God's word, and that if we accept it as being authoritative, we can never leave behind sin. We can never say sin was just a kind of an ancient way of dealing with, you know, just differences, societal problems, et cetera, et cetera. Sin is sin. But we have to understand that the Bible, when it uses the word sin, it doesn't always talk about it the same way. That sometimes the Bible talks about a sin nature. And if you are dominated by a sin nature, you really can't be a Christian. Because what should have happened when you became a Christian is that that sin nature was nailed to the cross. When the Bible talks about dying to self, you're dying to that sin nature. But John is trying to point out that we still sin, and he's talking about sin in a different way. Not sin in the sense that we have this sin nature that's controlling us, but that we, 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 still, we still disobey. We still don't do the things we should do, and we still do things we shouldn't do. We still, as the word that he's using here indicates, we still fall short of what God wants from us. 
And so John is talking to them, and, and don't miss that when he says, uh, my little children, my little children. He's talking like a father, and he's warning about dangers, and because he's calling them little children, he's trying, he, he understands something about them. He understands that, that they can't see it. They don't, they don't understand. They don't understand how, you know, thinking that, oh, this, this little false teaching, yeah, it's a little wrong, but it, it's not a big deal. Or this, this little bit of sin, it's, it's not wrong, it's not a big deal. You say, no, you, you don't see the connection. So I'm going to help you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I'm going to warn you. And so, like, a father speaking to little children. He's telling them that false teachings mean you have wrong beliefs. And if you have wrong beliefs, they will inevitably lead to wrong actions. And again, this can be really scary um, to children. I mean, if, if you, you know, sat down with your you know, five or six-year-old, and told them all the things that could kill them. I don't know why you would do this as a parent, by the way. It's not good parenting. But if you went through the list of all the things that could kill them, the kid's actually paying attention. Kid's never going to leave the room. You'd be terrified. If you, if you tell them the truth, we could die at any second. A meteorite could fall and land on you. Whatever. You, you know, a kid wouldn't understand that. Kid doesn't understand odds. Kid would just be terrified. It's scary. And if, and if, you, if you told your, your children, if you told your children, don't trust anyone above the age of 18, but this is what we usually say, don't trust anyone above the age of 18, no adults, stranger danger, except people you can trust. Smart kid's gonna go, how do I know I can trust them? When I, when I uh, teach college courses, and I know this problem because I have the same problem, is when a, when a student is writing a research paper and I tell them use good sources, but they've never studied this topic before. They don't know what a good source is. That's why children need adults someone to help them. Because how can you really know truth if you have so little experience and so little knowledge? Well, John is going to tell them why they shouldn't be so terrified that they don't do anything. That they, they, that they shouldn't be so afraid of making mistakes that they just are kind of paralyzed and petrified. Because that's how sometimes we are as Christians. We think like, you know, we're, we're not playing it safe because we're just selfish or just thinking, you know, like, you know, I'm just, I don't, I'm lazy, I don't want to do anything. Sometimes we play it safe because we're afraid of making a mistake. When I first learned grammar, I didn't learn it till college, which is a statement on our public education system. But when I got, when I got to college and I learned grammar and I, and, I, and I was in journalism program and we had class on news editing, and if you didn't pass that class, you couldn't continue in the degree. And so I, I learned grammar, but I didn't really know grammar. 
And so my approach to writing was, if I couldn't remember exactly the rule, I would just rewrite the sentence to avoid the rule, right? And of course, that's very limiting if you're trying to write. But that's how some of us are as Christians. Like, we don't want to make a mistake, and so we want to play it safe, because we don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to sin. But understand, that can still be sin. If you're not doing the things that you're supposed to do, if you're not doing the things that God is directing you to do, it's still sin. But anyways, we sometimes convince ourselves that if I don't take risk, if I don't push the envelope, then I'm safe. And John says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Go ahead, trust. Go ahead, risk. Go ahead and do. Because you know what? Sometimes you are going to make mistakes. And sometimes in doing the right thing, you are going to sin. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The example I sometimes use is when I talk about this, this idea of God and how he's faithful and just to forgive us, it, it, it's an example like if you ever played sports on a team sport and, and, and you ever were like put in the game and you had that coach that if you made one mistake, coach pulled you out. Well, a lot of times when a coach does that, the players don't play well because they're afraid of making that one mistake. But the coach who says, look, I'm going to put you in the game. I trust you. I know you're going to do some things right, and I know you're going to, make, you're going to do some things wrong, but you're staying in the game. As long as you keep playing, as long as you keep learning, as long as you keep growing, you're staying in the game. Different attitude now. That's God. That's what God says. He doesn't say you make one mistake, I'm pulling you out of the game. He says, no, I'm faithful. I'm going to forgive you if you confess. We should be able to live and act with confidence. And what's great about this is what he says in the end of verse 1. He says, if you do sin, if you do make a mistake, we have an advocate. It's not just up to me. It is up to me. I do need to confess. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we think about the word advocate, you know, a lot of times people talk about a lawyer, an attorney, and, and there's some sense of it here. But I think what happens is then people just go off and create all kinds of scenes that I don't think are necessarily depicted here. Just understand it this way. I'm not going to give you a picture. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. That as an advocate, Jesus in every way represents us before the Father. And that's great. You see, the reason God can look at you and see you as righteous is not because you're righteous, and you know that. And so then you go, well, is God blind? Can God not really see how ugly I am? Can he not see how 
how self-centered I am? Can he not see how, how weak and, and frail I am? Can't God see that? Is he just pretending? Is he just patronizing me? And the answer is no, because for all of you who called upon the name of the Lord, who trusted in Jesus Christ and not in your own righteousness, the Bible tells us you have been given the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is never unrighteous. God looks at you and he sees you through the advocate, through Jesus Christ. If that doesn't do something for you, that doesn't make you feel so blessed. I know we have the Governor George Ariyoshi Church working silently and effectively for the kingdom. You know, we don't say things in our church too much. We don't go, amen. We don't say hallelujah too much. But inside your heart, I hope right now, even though your faces look like this, that you're going, hallelujah, Jesus, what he did for us. And what he's constantly doing right now. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> we we, we, we got to know. We got to know. And we've been talking about the truth we live. It's not enough just to believe the right things. We have to live the truth we say we believe. And the way we live out this, the way we live out understanding that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus, his righteousness is how Christ sees us, I mean how God sees us, is that we want to be like Christ. What else would we want to be? What else? You then see him say this second thing where he says he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is this word that, uh, that has the idea that, that, that God is, is, is angry, that God is, is offended. And some people don't like that. They don't like the sense of an angry God. Well, you're going to have to deal with the Bible because God is pictured as being angry. Now, he's not angry the way we get angry. Most of the time we're angry it's because we're being selfish, because we're only you know, you know, thinking of what, what, what we want. I was really upset with one of my teams yesterday because they weren't preparing well, and I told them. I said, I'm not angry at you per se. I mean, I am angry at you. But, I'm, but what I'm upset is that you guys worked too hard to not be ready to race. And I think sometimes that's how God is with us. Too much has happened. Christ has done so much for us. And yet we still reject him. Yet we still want to go our own way. Yet we still keep getting deeper and deeper into sin and the consequences of sin. Jesus paid the penalty. That's the idea of propitiation, is that an angry God has to be appeased. And the appeasement 
was that the price had to be paid. And the price was paid. You see, we really never in this life can rightfully say we deserve anything good. And we say it all the time. We act like it all the time, like somehow we, we have the right to something. We deserve something. But when we understand, when we understand what the Bible teaches, when we understand what God, from God's perspective, we deserve nothing. In fact, we deserve punishment. We don't even deserve to exist. We don't deserve one single breath. And yet we're given it. And we're given more. See, what we deserve is horrible. It's terrible. But what we receive, what we receive, if we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's all grace. It's grace upon grace. It's abundant grace. It's amazing grace. You see, when we get this, when this is our truth, when we understand the truth that Jesus paid the penalty we could not pay, that what we receive from Jesus is, is not just the penalty removed. You know, the, the picture sometimes of, of, in the, of the courthouse, you know, when people talk about, oh, Jesus, you know, was there in the courthouse. God's the judge. You know, the judge said, you're guilty. And Jesus said, I'll take the penalty. You know, we like that story. And it's, it's an okay story, except it's not complete. Because you know what happens afterwards? If we complete the story, this is what happens. God says, okay, penalty paid. Now everybody come to my house. You, criminal, you're now part of my family. We come home. Do we get that? Some of us would be so happy that, oh, you know, penalties paid. Now I can just go off on my own. No, the judge says, come home with me. You're my child. The truth we live, if we believe that Jesus did that which we could not do, and all that we gain from it, the truth we live would be to say, I want to be as much like Christ as possible and as, and as far away from sin as possible. For me to do that, I got to know more what it means to be like Christ, and I got to know more what it means to be in sin. I need to know what is good. Not good from a human perspective, but what is good. What is good, the Bible teaches us is good. Not some generalized, vague concept of good. Not some world's list of good. And then I'm going to do it. But this is the other side of it, too. And we don't talk enough about that when we know what Jesus did for us on the cross, when we know what we would have received had he not done that, 
We should have overwhelming gratitude. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily think we, we, we do this. You know, we, we kind of have this attitude like, hey, yeah, thanks, God. Thanks, brother. It's good. Or maybe we think like, eh, you know, God wouldn't like a nice thank you card from me. Let me send him a nice thank you card. True gratitude. Overwhelming gratitude. Gratitude that, 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 that is pervasive. It's in, it's in all that we are. When we, have, when we understand what, what's been done for us, it should be really hard to wipe the smile off our face. Because no matter what is coming our way, what we know is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He provided new life. And I should be so full of joy. So full of gratitude. But sometimes we get this complacency and we think it's cool to be cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's new Christians. You want to get super excited about Jesus, you know, dying for yourself. Oh, that's great. But, you know, we've been around. We're good. We got it. True gratitude. True gratitude not just in what we say or what we sing or just what we might think, but in how we live. Do we live as people who have overwhelming gratitude to Jesus Christ? A couple more quick points. Tells us here, Jesus is more than my personal savior. It's very popular, it's very attractive to talk about how Jesus died for me. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us is that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that Jesus died for his church. That's what the Bible tells us. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. That Jesus wasn't just coming along to collect individuals. Hey, everybody want to come? You guys can come. No. Understand God's project, God's plan was to establish his kingdom. When we become believers in Jesus Christ and we understand that it's more than just about my personal salvation and Jesus being my personal savior, what we have to understand is that, is that now we join we join with the millions who came before us. We join with the millions who are in the world today. And we say, okay, God, what do we need to do to establish this kingdom? And we do it. The propitiation for the sins of the sins for the world. We need to get that. We need to understand there's a reason we can't, leave, we can't leave behind the idea that God, that God is angry. You see, if God's not angry, if he's not affected in any way, then, then we sometimes think of God's law and what he thinks is right and wrong. We think of it as just some rules he made up. And that's really not the way to think about it. 
Remember, what God is, is doing when he, when he presents the law to the people of, of Israel, he's, he's revealing something about himself. And to reject what he's revealing is not to simply reject his rules, but you're rejecting God personally. You're saying, I know better. I know better. I'm going to do it my way. A law is an expression of God's heart. And finally, if we believe Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, as we just looked at, if we believe that he's the propitiation for the sins of the world, as we just looked at, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how then shall we live? How should we live? If this is truth and you accept it as truth, how should you live? How should this change everything about who you are and what you think? That's what has to be open. I list a few things, but I can't nearly do enough justice to this. But, but for sure, we need to hate sin. And we need to love what is good. But of course, to hate sin and love what is good, we need to know what is good and not good from a human perspective, but good from God's perspective. In as much as we can, we need to live without sin. And, and living without sin doesn't mean just not, it doesn't mean you know, not doing or doing things. It's really about why we do things. Do we do things because we're being obedient to God? Do we do things because we love God and God loves us? Is that why we're doing it? Or is it for some other reason? If it's for any other reason, it's still sin. When we do sin, people who accept this truth, how then shall we live? We confess. We confess immediately. We don't have to wait till the end of the day. We don't have to wait till the end of the week. We can do it right at that moment. I think my dad was the one who first said this, and I think it's a good rule. You know, you want to know kind of how seriously you understand sin, how, how seriously you take sin, when you know you did something wrong, or when you know you didn't do what God was directing you to do, how long before you ask for forgiveness? The closer you get to that moment, the more you realize, the more you realize what sin does to us. And finally, tell others, show others, do whatever we can to help others know what Jesus has done for us and what he can do for them. If we really believe this, how then shall we live? You know, final little observation here is, you know, a lot of people, maybe nobody here, but I'm sure you know people here. I mean, you know people. They just want to be saved from the penalty of sin. They don't want to be saved from the power of it. Because, you know, sin's fun. You know, sin's good option, good alternative. I just want to be saved from the consequences, the penalty of it, but not the power. 
Jesus promises to do both. To save us from the penalty and the power. And if we're true followers of Christ, we desire both. You see, saving the world from sin, what that means sometimes is saving the world from itself. And that's hard to do. You ever try to help somebody who they're the ones who are, who are their worst enemy. They're the ones who are being destructive to themselves. It's really hard to help them. And yet Jesus comes and does that for the world. It's true for us too. Saving us from sin is often saving us from ourselves. And what we would do and what we would be if Christ didn't come and make all the difference.